the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. To that end, I've got a couple of excellent and timely guests this week. Anand Menon, director of UK Interchanging Europe, is back. And we were joined by Philip Rycroft. He ended his long and distinguished civil service career as permanent secretary at the Department for Exiting the EU, otherwise known as DEXEU. Uh, he started his civil service career in the Scottish office way back in the 1980s. Uh, and then he switched to the Scottish executive after devolution and then the Scottish government when it became that before switching to London in 2009 where he held a number of senior roles before ending up at Dexiu. Given his experience in Edinburgh and in Whitehall, I started by asking him his views on referendums with particular reference to the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit referendum, of course. What happened through those two referendums uh, is that the, the public was asked a really complicated, difficult question over which the public was very, very divided. And the result of that has been continued division since then. So in my view, referendums are quite good for confirming a shift in public opinion. So in Ireland, on abortion, on uh, same-sex marriage, on divorce and so on, you could argue the 1998 referendums uh, in Scotland and Wales, though the outcome was very close in Wales, referendum over the Good Friday Agreement. You can see where public opinion has shifted. A referendum is a good way of confirming that change. For, the, for Scotland, if you could imagine an independent country uh, getting gain on a result that would have been very, very tight if it had gone the other way, like 50 point something saying we want to be an independent nation, 49.9% say not, not a great start to a new country. On the EU referendum, in my view, to respect represented democracy, what we should have seen is a government elected on a commitment to leave the EU, uh, negotiating an exit and then maybe a confirmatory referendum to say, fine, uh, we will now take that step, knowing what the country was going to get into. I think the way that we've handled this has not been great. So, yeah, on, on just on the referendum. So um, back then I was working for the Sunday Post and I covered the Scottish referendum at close quarters and the uh, EU referendum. And in 2016, after the EU referendum, I went, right, enough, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> and left the Sunday Post at that point. You, on the other hand, Philip, having seen the Scottish <laughs> referendum at close quarters, found yourself heading towards Dexiu. Was, was yes. That, can you explain the thinking there? Um, not really. <laughs> I have to say, it was never my career ambition uh, to uh, to end my civil service time, my time in the civil service as a permanent secretary of something called the Department for Exiting the EU. When I used to talk to the fast streamers in the department, there were many fast streamers, a brilliant, brilliant folk, and they would ask me about how did you, you know, how did you plan your career uh, to become, you know, this sort of this great panjaram, a sort of permanent secretary. And I said, well, when I was your age, 
sitting up in the Scottish office uh, back in the um, in the late eighties. Of course, I I penciled in my ambition uh, to become permanent secretary of something called the Department for Exits in the EU. Yeah. Um, many decades later, and it, it's one of those things. It ha- I I wasn't anticipating that clearly. Nobody could in the circumstances. Um, the where I was was at the time of the referendum. I was running something called the UK Governance Group, looking after constitution and devolution issues. Indeed, carried on doing that all the way through till when I left the civil service. Um, we had to do the legislation uh, to introduce the referendum. We were doing all sorts of other stuff, Scotland out, Wales out. So I had a quite busy agenda. Um, but it was a constitutional agenda where there was a, a number of things that David Cameron wanted to do, and we were working through all of that. So I sort of expected to end my career um, having completed that programme, fine, done the job for that government, move on, go off and do some other stuff. Uh, however, obviously the referendum went the way it went. Um, we then had to deal with the fallout of that with the devolved governments and the devolved parts of the country uh, and the constitutional implications. And meanwhile, Dexy was clearly in a bit of a difficult place. So Jeremy Hayward rang me up one day and said, um, would I mind going off to become a second perm second Dexy to support Ollie Robbins, who was then permanent secretary, and, uh, you know, it was a sort of question it was difficult to say no to, um, do one for the for the country, as it were, so off I went. Then, of course, after six months or so, there was the, the next shift when Ollie went off to set up the Cabinet Office Europe unit to try and resolve some of the tensions in the system, uh, leaving me to, to run the department. So it was, a, it was an odd set of circumstances. Nobody planned it that way. Um, I say Jeremy uh, asked me to step into the role and I went, I can't say gladly, I went with a bit of trepidation. I'm not sorry that I did it, but it was hard work. Why the trepidation? Clearly, it was an extraordinarily difficult challenge. Um, This was not just about the scale of what we had to do, uh, getting ready for Brexit in all its dimensions. People tend to forget what Dexu did. People assume it was all about the negotiations. Ollie clearly led on the negotiations throughout, supported by Dexu and by folk in Dexu. Um, but Dexu did a huge amount. It did all the legislation. It did all the no deal planning. It did the planning for a deal outcome as well. We were preparing for the next stage of negotiations. We were coordinating the handling of all the hundreds of international agreements that hinged off our membership with the EU. We were doing engagement with business. We were doing engagement around the world with other governments uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So a huge uh, amount of work that Dexu uh, undertook. So there was a, it was a very, very big challenge. And as a good civil servant, of course, you get locked in and engaged on that because that's what, uh, uh, that's what you're there to do. But Dexu was operating in a difficult context. It was the new kid on the block. Um, it was doing stuff that a number of other actors around the system thought they ought to have been doing. So it was operating in a space where there was a lot, quite a lot of what I might describe as institutional jealousies and tensions. So it was just hard work asserting Dexu presence day in, day out. Not helped of course, by the fact that the political context was so desperately uncertain throughout. Um, as a politics wonk, Anand, 
it must have been fascinating watching Dexu uh, be set up in the first. I mean, you know, it's a huge department set up in a very strange time, um, and then as, as Philip says, with a massive job to do. But as a as an experiment for politics wonks like you to watch, must have been great. It was. I mean, I'm, I'm not Jill Rutter. I don't get necessarily excited by machinery of government changes to the extent that she does. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting because, of course, over the over the years, we've shifted how we've dealt with the EU in a number of ways. You know, it was Tony Blair that brought things into the cabinet office under Stephen Wall in the early 2000s, if I remember rightly. So we've, we've had different models. And actually, in that respect, it was interesting to see the model that was adopted. There was a lot of cynicism early on about uh, Dexio, I think. And I think, you know, Philip's right that we, we often underestimate how much was achieved, though it does strike me that one of the structural problems with Dexio was the fact that in that divided government of the time, being separate from the prime minister was a problem that Dexio uh, always struggled with. That is to say, you're not in the sort of number 10 machinery. And that, that caused problems from the start. I mean, it's easy to say this with hindsight. The problem ultimately was not so much structural, it was political. It would have, it would have worked far better if you'd had a, a pretty seamless line of political accountability through prime minister, secretary of state into officialdom. But of course, the, uh, the, the secretary of state, the prime minister, people were operating in, in rather different spaces. Uh, and that and, and that seamless political authority wasn't there, and so ultimately that was the that was the real problem. Was illustrated by the fact that um, in my time, relatively short time in Dexu, a couple of years, we had three secretaries of state. This was not a comfortable political setup. Um, if this had been a government uh, that had had one single view everybody pulling in the same direction, working to a programme that had been agreed in advance and the civil service doing its job to implement that programme, I don't think a, a, a number of the, the problems that we faced would have, would have occurred in the same way. It's not a structural issue. It's ultimately it's a political issue. Was that the biggest problem or frustration? Um, as you say, there were three secretaries of state. There was also three perp secs in, in Dexu's fairly short life. You know, it, were, were both of those things signs of bigger problems with the whole concept? Or, you know, did they actually cause some of the problems, that, that churn, if you like? The, the, the turnover of ministers, and we wanted to say to the state, we had a, had a, a fairly rapid turnover of, of, of other ministers as well, was a, a, absolutely a sign of the, uh, of, of the political difficulties that the government was in, self-evidently. You, you don't have that sort of turnover unless there are disagreements politically. Uh, and But that was part of this sort of wider, uh, unstable political environment. It made it difficult for the whole civil service, not, not just for Dexu. This was a cabinet uh, that, in my experience, was more viscerally divided than the, the, the cabinet that I worked quite closely with through the coalition years when I worked in, in Nick Clegg's office. And there you had a, a government composed of two political parties. Uh, and of course, they had quite sharp political differences on, on quite a lot of things, but they tended to be operating on the same spectrum. You know, it might be at one end of the spectrum or the other, and we would tend to try and argue uh, for an outcome somewhere in the middle. But in terms of the big things the government was doing around handling uh, the, the fiscal problem about trying to get the economy back on its feet and so on. There was a broad, if you like, ideological alignment. And that was not the case of the May cabinet. This was a deeply visceral uh, 
divide, with different, very, very different views about the fundamental issue facing the country. And that posed a huge challenge uh, to the civil service because there was no, there was no route map. Uh, there was no confidence that the advice that you were putting forward would be treated as it should have been treated, as an honest attempt to put the uh, good, solid, evidence-based uh, uh, policy recommend recommendations in front of ministers. Um, you know, the risk always that it would be seen as somehow um, ideologically tainted. So it, it, the bearings that you would normally be there for civil servants just weren't uh, weren't visible, and that made life quite tough. And of course, the civil service became a scapegoat for some of those problems. Yes, and that that was an, a, an additional sort of factor around all of this. Um, that you, there were quite a lot of noises off um, uh, saying that, that you know the civil service was was stuffed full of remainers and the reason that ministers were getting the advice they were getting is because the, the civil service was itself being ideologically driven. That made me really, really cross. I, I worked in Dexu with, at the time I left, about 700 folk who were working pretty much night and day to deliver on behalf of the governments of the country. That's the job civil servants have to do, irrespective of their own opinions. I never ever asked anybody in my department how they voted in the referendum, I would not allow that question to be posed. It was completely irrelevant. Our job was to deliver for the elected government of the day, and that's what we did. And to have these folk um, uh, making these nippy comments off was intensely irritating. And actually, I think, revealed the lack of confidence in their own arguments that they had to seek to scapegoat uh, the civil service suggested to me um, that they, they weren't actually fully confident in the solidity of the arguments they were putting forward. It was cheap shots and really didn't become the politicians in particular uh, that fired them. Do you think that it's always been like that or has it got a lot worse? I mean, over the weekend, you know, scum media was trending on Twitter and it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Which is you know, you play the man, not the ball. And has that always been the case? And are we just being a little bit precious about it or has it got worse? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think the civil service has probably been more exposed uh, uh, in the last few years than is normally the case. But it's, there's, of course, the civil service has always had the potential to be there as a scapegoat when things have gone wrong. And individuals within the civil service have had a pretty rough time, sometimes taking the can unfairly um, for ministers, uh, sometimes um, uh, uh, perhaps been uh, having to, to leave their jobs because they, they had done something um, uh, that merited that. Um, but I think, the, again, it's a reflection of the, of the ideological times that we're in. Um, in normal course, the civil service is frankly not that interesting to most folk. It gets on with its job, it may do it more or less well, but it churns away and, you know, it's fine for folk like you and I, Anand, who, you know, got an interest in this stuff and we can try and understand the structures and working of government, but it's pretty dull and fine, the country gets on with it. But when you're in these, these really difficult uh, ideologically driven times, everything's being prayed in aid, 
uh, for either side of the argument. And the civil service ineluctably gets drawn into that. And I think that's what we've seen happening. Now, I don't, I'm not naive about this. And, you know, frankly, nobody needs to lose any uh, any sleep over the concerns of somebody like me or the experience I had. We're all grown up, so we knew what we were doing. But it does need calling out um, because we have in the civil service an institution that serves, by and large, serves this country pretty well. It is impartial. It comes from a, a long tradition um, of impartiality, political neutrality. Um, and that, I think, is important to preserve that. There is no other civil service waiting around the corner if this one is trashed and has, has to move on. Uh, and I think if the country decides as a whole at some point that it requires uh, or it'd be a good idea to have a more politicised civil service, that's fine. Other traditions have more politicised civil services. But that's a step that would need very, very careful thought so that we were sure there'd be more benefits in that than disbenefits. I personally am not convinced that politicising the civil service uh, is a great idea. Uh, I don't think it would add uh, to the, the competence, if you like, of the administration of the country. Um, and politicians who advocate that need to make the argument. But meantime, uh, they should show a bit of respect for the civil service that we have. How big a deal is it, if you like, in that, you know, as you say, the civil service has perhaps been exposed to a whole new range of uh, influences, if you like, but certainly attacks. Um, will it blow over with Brexit if and when I, Brexit blows over? Or is this something more fundamental? Has something changed in the last few years that, that can't be undone? I ask a really fascinating question, and I don't know the answer to that. And there are clearly those in and around the government, um, and some of whom have been very much in the news over the last few days, um, who think that the existing model is broken and is not fit for purpose in the 21st century. Uh, and there is this, I think, slightly incohate, um, pent-up sort of frustration with the way the system works. I'm not quite sure what alternative um, would be offered but I suspect that the civil service uh, uh, could come under quite a lot of pressure uh, over the course of this administration, um, uh, partly as a result of the Brexit experience, partly, I suspect, also as a result of the coronavirus experience. As I say, not necessarily um, with, a, with a clear, organised reform programme to pursue, but more a sort of a visceral uh, uh, a visceral feeling that the thing doesn't work now so we've got to dismantle it um, but my worry is the dismantling happens before there's a very clear blueprint for what you build in its place you're obviously talking about dominic cummings there uh as a as a former senior civil servant uh, you know you've, you've seen what's happened over the last few days we're recording this on tuesday we've had the press conference we've had all the well, we don't know if we've had all the news stories we've had a number of news stories there might be more to come um you know what do you feel about that what do you think about that well one of the most extraordinary things about the press conference yesterday was the fact that it happened at all mm. and where it happened in in the uh in the garden of number 10 that in itself is a is, is quite an extraordinary circumstance that somebody who is effectively official is not elected um, should be conducting a press conference on his own behalf um, in the Number 10 Garden. Uh, I, I think we've all probably, in, in the sort of the sweep of these events, slightly missed that one. But that in itself um, is very, very unusual. I, this, 
has been such a huge distraction to a government uh, at a moment of of real national crisis. Uh, and whatever one else thinks about all of this, um, a government that sort of prides itself on handling its own story well has clearly failed to handle this story. Ultimately, this is about credibility uh, and trust. Credibility of the advisor to the prime minister, credibility of the prime minister and trust in the government. My worry is that this episode has eroded public confidence in the government. Now, some of that damage has been done, but if you look forward, let's say we roll forward to the autumn and there's a resurgence of the disease and the government is obliged at that point to reimpose lockdown. And it reaches for the slogan that was really, really effective. We all obeyed it. Stay at home. And the Prime Minister goes into a press conference and says, I'm sorry to say, but we're back where we were. And the injunction is stay at home. Some bright spark's going to put the hand up and say, so, Prime Minister, who stay at home is that? Uh, does that mean I can drive 250 miles to sort out my childcare and see my family? or indeed drive 30 miles to check out my eyesight. And those questions will be asked. Now, I'm not going to opine on whether Dominic Cummings should or will resign. That's not a matter for me at all. I am concerned now as a citizen about the credibility of the government's message, and that's what it ought to be worrying about. Presumably this becomes an issue in political calculations now, in the sense that it'll be something discussed in the event that they're considering reimposing lockdown, is like you know, it, it becomes an issue in its own right now. I think that that is precisely the problem. Advisors are there to be to advise; they're not there to be part of a story to be managed. Um, you've been following uh, for the last few years this this entire narrative at close quarters, Anans. I mean, is this just normal now for for bizarre episodes like this to blow up? We've had more than our fair share in the last whatever it's been four years now. Well, this clearly isn't normal, uh, though actually what you do have, it seems to me, is a prime minister with a slightly different view of accountability to that which might have ultimately been the norm in our politics beforehand. Uh, and you have a government that basically is willing to just try and ride things out to an extent that I find quite remarkable as well. Uh, well, one of the interesting things about this debate to, for me is whilst people have tried to couch it in terms of a leave versus remain thing, while you have papers like the Daily Mail uh, attacking the government, it shows just the extent to which the prime minister has gone out on a limb. If this had been a leave remain divide, then yes, the government would have been in its comfort zone. This is the politics they're used to. You just say moaning remainers, you know, people in townhouses on Dominic Cummings Street moaning. Well, actually, we don't care. But, but it has fractured those coalitions a little bit. And one of the fascinating things will be to see if those coalitions can be put back together again, because as long as the male notably, and also many of the articles in The Telegraph today, Camilla Tomini was acerbic about what's been going on. These are natural supporters of the prime minister. And that, that's what makes it slightly unusual for me. Um, and we're talking about the, the, obviously the ongoing coronavirus crisis. Have you seen parallels with Brexit? in this crisis. It's not quite obvious, but it seems the obvious parallel to look for is the way that civil servants did come under attack uh, during Brexit and the scientists 
are perhaps getting similar treatment in this, would you say? Yeah, there's some similarities. There's also some big differences, of course. And nobody's, uh, nobody's accusing the scientists of having a different agenda. Um, but there may, be a, uh, there may be a risk of scientists being scapegoated for decisions that were taken. I, the, it, I, th I think what we're seeing happening here is um, a, a view of the science that was always exaggerated. Uh, the science was never that clear, still isn't that clear. We still don't really understand the epidemiology of this virus, how, you know, how it's working out, why more some people get affected worse than others, how it's spread in different countries. There's going to be a huge amount of learning on all of this for a very long time. So the scientists were always advising ministers on the basis of the science as they, as they understood it. These were not science-based decisions. These were political decisions taken on the basis of the best scientific evidence that ministers had in front of them. Uh, you can't blame scientists for those political decisions. The politicians may say, with hindsight, the advice we were getting was not full advice. Um, it, was, it was wrong in some respects. I'm sorry, that's tough. You're the elected politician. You're in place to take difficult decisions uh, on the basis of an incomplete evidence base. Uh, if it turns out with hindsight that some of those uh, decisions were the wrong decisions, you carry the can, you're the politician, that's why you're elected. So I think there is a risk that some will say, Ooh, you know, they'll sort of whinge and moan a bit because the scientific advice was not clear. Uh, but that I, is, is absolute displacement activity. It's a tough old world being a politician, and I frankly would not have wanted to be in the, in the boots of those folk, not just in this country, but around the world, taking these extraordinarily difficult decisions when we really didn't know enough about this virus to be sure that those decisions were the right ones. But that's why we elect folk. That's the privilege of office to take big decisions. Uh, and uh, at the end of this process, it's the politicians who have to carry the can for the political decisions that were made. And when it comes to the blame game, what's quite interesting is I think the government will come to regret the tagline, we're listening to the science. If they say we're listening to the scientists, then what Theresa Coffey said the other week, which is the scientists got it wrong, would make a kind of sense. But having said we're listening to the science, yeah. which, as you say, gets science wrong and implies that there is an answer there on a notebook that you can simply yeah. deploy makes it very hard to turn around and say, but, but the science was wrong now. But he, 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 even, even saying, you know, we were listening to the science, this is sort of misconstrues yeah. the nature of science. Absolutely. Science in very, very few domains gives an unequivocally clear single answer. We yeah. know beyond a matter of doubt now that there are a huge range of scientific views about this virus propounded by people with... CVs as long as my arm and Nobel Prizes and goodness knows what, taking very, very different views of how we should be handling this. Um, that's why it comes that that's why we have elected politicians. They've got to sift all of that, make up their minds what they think is in the best interest of the country and make those tough decisions. Uh, and that's why there is, I'm sure you're right, there is a risk that at some point somebody will want to say, well, it wasn't me. Um, I, you know, I, this is what the science has told me, and I, I, I followed that advice. And frankly, that's that's feeble in advance, and it'll be feeble at the time if those sorts of excuses are uh, uh, are used. 
But it's what they did to Ollie Robbins, isn't it? The, I, I think the, it was a bit different in that context because I think the there, the, unlike with the science, the, this the the whole Brexit thing, there was this, uh, there was there um, an attempt to paint people into the ideological corners. So the reason this was really difficult is not because, bluntly, it was really difficult. It's because you're a Remainer. No, 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 no. I'm not a Remainer. It, it, my political views are completely irrelevant to this. Uh, the reason that you're getting this advice is because this is the view of the world as I see it. You can disagree with this advice. You can disagree with my recommendations. That's absolutely fine. What I can't do is change the world uh, of facts and obje objective circumstance that I'm witnessing and interacting with uh, in a way that changes the advice that I'm going to give to you. And that, that was very challenging, not just for Ollie, it was challenging for, for lots of civil servants through that time. We had our own particular set of issues uh, in Dexu, for example, around the uh, the uh, economic advice that accompanied the withdrawal agreement. Do you remember it in a sort of slightly dramatic fashion? Uh, it was leaked at the beginning of 2018. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know it was controversial because every outcome had a minus sign in front of it in terms of prospects for future, uh, the impact on future growth. Um, and uh, I know I had to say to Melissa, I'm sorry, um, I know this is not very comfortable to you, um, but what I can't do is to go and adjust the economic model in a way that turns all those minus signs into positive signs. And we stuck with it. And one of the things I'm proud of the team, really, because they, a lot of these folk put in immense effort to get this right, not just in Dexu, but across the, the led by Dexu, but across uh, the, the government. And this was the, the advice that was published uh, or the, the analysis that was published in November uh, 2018. Um, and that was, I think, you know, that was a civil service at its best, um, doing the work it had to do, uh, saying to ministers, you cannot do this without an economic assessment. And this is what the numbers are telling us based on well-respected modelling. And to, to credit, ultimately, of, uh, of the Prime Minister, Mrs May, that's what went at the public domain. That's the, the, the direct line, isn't it? Uh, and you're the, the sphinx to Brexit. Brexit, rightly or wrongly, offered simple, straightforward solutions to complex problems. Uh, it might it might be the right answer to some of those problems, but but the point is it was simplified, and isn't that where we are now with with coronavirus to some extent? And the politicians who are now in charge are used to these uh, simplifying what are complex issues to fairly simple answers, and you can't do that with coronavirus, and you couldn't actually do that with Brexit either, as it turns out. Well, no, and it seems to me that we have these two completely different worlds now coexisting at the heart of government. On the one hand. Coronavirus, everything is conditional. We'll have to wait and see. Let's see what the evidence says before moving forward any further. We might have to reconsider. The whole language about easing the lockdown is couched in those terms. And on the other hand, obviously, we're ending transition because we said we would. And, you know, then we could ignore the fork. I mean, you have these two very, very different strains of thinking just sitting together very uneasily at the heart of government at the moment. Um, that's very helpful to, to mention transition because let's let's go there. Right. Come on. There's got to be an extension. I know I ask this every week, but I, I'm only getting more frustrated with what's going on. But there has to be an extension, doesn't there? I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, personally, I, I see 
absolutely no evidence that the government's going to change its mind on this one. And why is it the government's not talking to the economics of this? It's not talking to the commentariat, the folk who responded to your survey the other day, and and saying, oh, you know, the, 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 this 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 is a, such a no-brainer. What they I think are looking at is the promises they made in the election to the electorate that won them that election. This is a very deep article of faith that there will be no extension. Don't forget they legislated for this, one of those bits of completely unnecessary uh, totemic legislation, but it just a sort of the earnest of intent on this. We are now not very far off the moment where they have to, to make the request. 30 June is a hard deadline because at that moment, the whole Article 50 construct that has allowed this transition to happen expires. So if you want to do this in September, October, you've got to go into a completely different treaty base and it becomes a lot more complicated to, to do that. So 30 June is a hard deadline. Uh, I just don't see it happening. Economic logic says, of course, you would do it because I think what people uh, don't see as clearly as they might is that uh, whatever happens at the end of this year, if we don't extend transition, we get a new trade border for goods and services with the EU. Uh, that happens whether we get a deal or not. So British businesses or UK-based businesses, businesses importing the UK, will face new trade barriers at the end of this year, come what may, if we don't extend. Now, doing that on the back of the biggest peacetime shock to the economy since 1929 in a sort of asymmetric way that impacts on the UK more than any other country in the world doesn't look like a hugely sensible thing to do. But that's, on the face of it, what's going to happen. I mean, the one thing I would ask you, though, Philip, is this. I mean, one argument you hear is, look, coronavirus has led to a massive adaptation in the way we do business with international supply chains being affected, global trade being affected. And given that this government is committed to an approach that will mean significant adaptation because of Brexit, because deal or no deal, as you say, actually, our way of trading with the European Union is going to change quite fundamentally, that there's a degree of logic in bundling it all up together rather than doing coronavirus, letting everything go back to normal, then doing it again in two years time. There, there is an argument there, clearly, that you sort of take all the pain at once. But I, I, I don't particularly by that. Of course, coronavirus is going to cause um, adjustments in supply chains, the way that we go about our business, the way we work. We actually have no idea yet how extensive that's going to be. And this, this whole thing about adjusting supply is not that easy to do, and nor is it going to happen overnight. Now, you talk to uh, anybody in the auto industry about uh, the integrity of supply chains. It's not that easy to set up as a new car uh, part manufacturer um, in one part, you know, to shift production from one part of the world to another, or indeed to start new production and a new business um, uh, in, in another part of the world. These things are going to take a lot of time. So I think there is, of course, um, we're going to go through some adjustments. Um, and there is a there is an argument to say you, you, you just, um, you know, throw everything in the pot at the same time and we'll work out whether we can um, uh, you know, uh, swim back up to the surface uh, more rapidly than we otherwise might have done. That's a sort of pretty brave contention. 
Hi, Arnand here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter every two weeks, free in your inbox. Do it now. We have got I mean, a, a significant expert in devolution here, so... I will ask you before we move on to the, the final feature question to, to just, if you can, and I know it's quite a big question to sort of finish with, but um, in light of coronavirus and in light of uh, Brexit, can you sketch out what happens to UK devolution from here on in? Uh, and does it involve Scottish independence? That is a very big question. I think one of the really fascinating things about coronavirus is it's revealed... Um, just how centralised the the British state, probably the best term, still is. Uh, uh, the the the, res- the way that the response has been managed uh, has been uh, reaching for the the central solution, if you like. And this in a, in a in a in a context of a of a crisis, which by definition is multi-point, um, and where you've got difference in local circumstance difference in the response locally and where logic would have suggested that it would have been uh, really powerful to have had a, a more uh, well-resourced, empowered regional actors to deal, to, to support the dealing with this crisis. But it, it, it has revealed a, something fairly fundamental, I think, about the nature of the British state, which I think does bear a lot of examination. You layer on top of that uh, the fact that this is a government whose very being is founded on the notion of the indivisible sovereignty of the United Kingdom Parliament. And you've got quite an interesting mix when it comes to dealing with devolved governments who claim part of that sovereignty. Now, I've heard um, that there is talk of this parliament being called the so-called Restoration Parliament. It's sort of taken us back into a pre-lapsarian state before all the labour reforms of the, of the late 90s, before this experiment with our membership of the EU. And you can see how from that mindset, devolution looks really, really awkward um, because it's an inhibitor on the exercise of the power of that of the state that is organised through that central notion of UK parliamentary sovereignty. So I think we're in a we're in, a, in a, an interesting space because, of course, that set of views collides absolutely with where opinions are in Scotland. Um, you look what's happened since the referendum. Um, there has been certainly no switch back um, in favour of the union. Uh, the the polling over last year or so seems to indicate a sustained, fairly moderate, but sustained rise in support for independence. We're now at the 50-50 mark. Uh, If you look beneath the surface of that, opinions amongst young folk, where the whole idea of independence is now normalised, the United Kingdom is in a parlous state from that perspective. Uh, And it's going to require wise government from the South in particular, to persuade people in in Scotland, but also in Wales and Northern Ireland, that this thing called the United Kingdom or Great Britain 
still has emotional resonance as well as economic sense. Uh, and my concern is we're a long way off making that argument in, a, in the powerful way that it needs to be made. Let's finish up with um, uh, the feature, the feature which is still ongoing. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Have you got a recommendation for understanding Brexit and or everything that's ever happened since? The book by the British Election Study called mm-hmm. Electoral Shocks, which basically uses their data, which is the best data, to look at uh, the 2015 and 2017 elections and try and map what happened and why. And it's re- it's quite clearly written. I mean, there are bits that, unless you're into the techie stuff, you can just skip over. Uh but it basically sort of tries to explain why our politics has become so turbulent. So mine's slightly different. It's The um, Life of Thomas Cromwell by Dermot McCulloch. Um, the reason for this, um, this I, I think is a brilliant exposition of the court politics of the 16th century. And one of the things we haven't talked about, but maybe for another podcast, the nature of, of Whitehall Westminster as a court, it's still very, very relevant today, though we don't tend to chop people's heads off uh, these days. But there's a story here of a priapic ruler concerned above all else with his legacy, whose personal ambitions and neuroses were co-opted to engender a process of essentially ideological reform. There's lots of personalities you can play around with this. There's Thomas Cranmere, maybe uh, Michael Gove. Dominic Cummings as a sort of a proto-Thomas Cromwell. Certainly, you know, somebody there who's got the, the sort of propagandist skills. Not sure he's actually got the administrative genius of Thomas Cromwell, but there's a that's another another a thought for another day. But I think the really interesting understanding of all of this is something we've missed with the whole Brexit thing, a lot of us, is the is the uh, is the ideological zeal, the faith-based zeal. Uh, of what is essentially a reform movement. And you see that in the Reformation, um, that folk like Thomas Cromwell and the other reformers had God on their side. In a, in a, in a, that's what they believed. They were driving something that was very, very deeply faith, uh, faith-based. And I think we've seen something similar in those, uh, uh, the sort of purists who, who advocate in Brexit. This is not susceptible to economic argument, to a whole lot of other sort of arguments, because it is deeply, if you like, morally based. They think this is the right thing for the country. So final thought, the the Reformation was clearly foundational uh, in the way this country evolved over time. It's impossible to say whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Brexit, similarly, uh, I think is potentially foundational for the future of the United Kingdom. And, and likewise, it's very difficult from where we sit to say whether this is for good uh, or for ill, but it certainly set us off on a, a, on a journey. There you go. Fascinating chat, Philip Rycroft, as you could tell by his recommendation, which was a clever one. He's got uh, lots to say. Uh, Undoubtedly a good thing that freed from uh, civil service strictures since his retirement, he can add all his wisdom and experience to the public sphere. 
Um, if you want to add some wisdom and experience to the public sphere by commenting on anything that was in that podcast, get in touch. You'll get me at Political Yeti on Twitter, or UK and Changing Europe are at UK and EU, or their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. The music has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra this week, and this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another episode, my final episode, so definitely worth looking out for when it appears in your feed. For now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.